0: Now for those of you who don't know, Dr. Peterson is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and he has taught mythology to lawyers, doctors, and businessmen. He's consulted on the United Nations Secretary General's High Panel on Sustainable Development. He's published over 100 scientific papers that have transformed the modern understanding of personality. He's revolutionized our understanding of religious psychology with his book, Maps of Meaning, the Architecture of Belief. And He's bringing all of that knowledge and all of that information today to explain to us and shed some light on the truth in mythology and the truth in Genesis. Again, I have the privilege to introduce and I hope that you'll join me in welcoming Dr. Jordan Peterson. All right, so I'm going to When this was originally scheduled, it was scheduled as two talks, but it's one talk. It's just one very long talk. So, and the topics are so intertwined that it makes more sense just to integrate them, I would say. And uh, it also gives us the opportunity to go into this in some depth, and that's worth doing. So, away we go. Shakespeare, I like this quote a lot from Shakespeare because I think it, it sets the context for what we're going to talk about. There are different ways of defining truth. Um, modern people tend to define truth as, as a set of empirical facts and that's a perfectly reasonable definition of truth but it's not a complete definition as far as I'm concerned and it's actually important that it's incomplete. It's important because the fact that it's incomplete leaves you without direction for action. And um, because mere collections of facts cannot tell you what to do about the facts. And that actually has psychological consequences for people. And the psychological consequences are that directionless is actually very bad for people. And so my sense is that, it's a presupposition obviously, but my sense is that If a a theory of truth leaves people bereft of direction and meaning and leaves them swamped in existential anxiety, then there's something incomplete about the definition of truth. Now, you know, that's an axiomatic statement, and it could be right and it could be wrong, but it's at least uh, reasonable to pursue it, given that we're living creatures and that The quality of our life matters and it matters to our behavior and I would also say that it's more important for human beings to know What to do than to know what is not that knowing what is is trivial and and Shakespeare basically lays this out You know, he says all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts and so the idea that's implicit in that. And in in drama in general and in literature and in art and in, in mythology and in the biblical stories is that the world is a place in which action takes place. And so one question is, well, how do you understand the nature of truth in action? And that's actually the question that mythology is, I wouldn't precisely say trying to answer because that's not exactly right, but... Providing answers is certainly correct. So, the first thing that we might want to think about, if we're thinking about life as a drama, is what are the essential elements of the plot? And um, this is one representation, is that, you know, there's human beings, that's us, obviously, and and we're bounded and finite and mortal and and fragile and capable of malevolence, so were were you could say insufficient across a number of dimensions, both voluntarily and involuntarily, and at the same time in, encapsulated within that limitation, we also have to face the reality of the absolute, the totality of things that we're immersed in, and the nature of that totality and so we're always you could say that the fundamental existential position of human beings is the finite confronting the absolute. And that's a basic truth, and I think it's a basic religious truth. The question, of course, is, at least in part, the questions are, what is the nature of the finite and what is the nature of the infinite? And the nature of the finite, at least in part, is both limitation and suffering. And these particular artistic representations, I I think, do a pretty good job of that, both from the masculine and the feminine side. So part of the reason that the crucifix is such a powerful image, and has had such a, a sway over people for so many thousands of years is that you know it, it, it represents life as suffering uh, in, a, in an ultimate sense, that, that's one way of thinking about it. That's what makes it archetypal from a psychological perspective. It's, it's a, a, a statement about reality that can't be transcended in some sense, because the ultimate tragedy, obviously, is the most innocent person who's subject to the most horrible punishment. And so Christ is represented as a sinless individual whose only motivations are the highest good, who's then subject to betrayal by his friends, tyranny of the state, physical torture, and uh, humiliating death. And so it's, it's a story, in some sense, past which you can't go, right? Because the worst of all tragedies is the unjust punishment of the best person. And so in in that sense it's archetypal of of suffering and 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 the problem of human human existence and you know the idea of the cross you know in a cathedral for example is often laid out in the shape of a cross and the idea is that the center of the cross is where the transformation takes place the center of the cross is where 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 reality comes together and it comes together in this tragic manner that can in principle be transcended but it's very much worth worth considering that and understanding it, because one of the things that makes religious stories, Christianity, with regards to the crucifixion, perhaps in particular, so profoundly meaningful is that it's attempting to deal with the worst of all possible problems. So it's not only that, that the crucifixion represents the fragility of the individual, but it also represents the subjection of the individual, not only to finitude and tragedy but also to malevolence and evil because of course christ is also betrayed by his friends so which is the worst form of betrayal so and betrayed for doing good things that's the other thing so that's in some sense you might consider that the masculine end of the of the suffering continuum Um, although it's also relevant to women because of course women are individuals and also suffer as individuals but there's a different order of suffering that's associated with women and i think it's very much Accurately portrayed with Michelangelo's Pieta and so you see there a representation of Mary who you might think about the archetypal as the Archetypal mother which of course she is the divine mother Let's say and who's always giving birth to the potentially world redeeming hero Which is the proper way to consider your relationship with your infant and the thing about I was just reading this book called uh, better never to have been and it was by this uh, Cape Town, South African philosopher, and he basically makes the case that if you add up the suffering in life and you add up the joy in life and you subtract the joy from the suffering, you're left with an excess of suffering. And as a consequence, since suffering is wrong, then being is wrong and bringing children into the world is wrong. And um, you know, I think that that's a very um, bad way of looking at the world for a variety of ways. Uh, there's a variety of consequences to looking at the world that way. Um, And it's also not a very sophisticated argument, but it it does have some merit to it because, you know, people, women do ask themselves if it's a reasonable thing to bring children into a world such as this, you know, and and they usually use the tragedies of the time to, to, uh, what would you say, justify that hesitation, or maybe their own genetic or biological insufficiencies, they're afraid of passing down hereditary diseases or something like that, but... One of the things that the paeta is so good at at representing is, you know, Mary's actually relatively calm and serene in that representation, even though she's holding the broken body of her son. And I suppose, in some sense, that's the most tragic thing that can befall a mother. But what the the sculpture signifies or symbolizes or represents is the courage that's involved in being a mother or a parent, but let's say being a mother, knowing that if you have a child, that you're basically offering that child to the world to be broken because everybody that comes into existence suffers and dies. And so if you take on that uh, responsibility voluntarily, then first of all, it's an affirmation of being itself because you're, you're making the claim in the most fundamental way that being is valuable despite the fact that it's suffering. And it's also an act of tremendous courage because I don't think it's unreasonable to point out that Mothers, it's one thing you learn when you're a parent is that, and this is why parenthood is so associated with maturity, is that your child actually becomes someone who's more important than you. And so to bring someone who's more important, more significant into the world than you, knowing full well that they're going to be broken in the final analysis, is, is a strange affirmation of being despite its tragedy. And I would say that that's associated... That's equivalent, in some sense, to the female crucifixion. It's not exactly the same thing, but but you get the point. It's it's the voluntary acceptance of extreme suffering as the price to be paid for being. And so so that's part of the eternal drama of of mankind, right? We're finite and we face the absolute. And the finitude that characterizes us uh, renders us susceptible to tragedy. And there's another element to that, too, that's very important, which is that the the finitude that characterizes us, that renders us susceptible to tragedy also tends to to tempt us towards malevolence, I would say, because, well, for for a variety of reasons. I mean, because we suffer and because the world is a very tragic place, it's easy to become embittered and, and resentful and arrogant and deceitful and... And and to and to feel that you have good cause for that. that I mean, it, this is no simple thing. And then, of course, that adds another layer of of catastrophe to being itself. And I suppose that's associated with the emergence of the knowledge of good and evil, which is something we'll talk about as we progress through this talk as well. So that's sort of the dramatic stage, you might say. And and that's not really the same as describing the world in objective material terms, right? It's more like describing the world as a as a drama, as a play that that has a certain plot and that, and that we're all involved in in one way or, or another and, and often in very similar ways because these questions, these fundamental existential questions, you might say, or archetypal questions, are the fundamental questions of our lives always. It's, it's always and everywhere, no matter who we are, no matter what tribe we belong to, no matter whether we're Part of a very advanced technological civilization or a simpler tribal society. It's the same reality that confronts us everywhere we happen to be, which I suppose is the hallmark of our common humanity. So, you see this in, not only in Christianity, for example, you see it in Buddhism that um, the first noble truth is that life is suffering. and, And, you know, there's... One question that rises out of that is that if that's true, then how is life justifiable? And I would say that the entire uh, corpus of the biblical stories is an attempt to answer precisely that question, except more particularly, it's a, it's an attempt to answer the question, a more sophisticated question, which is given that life is suffering, is there a mode of being that justifies the suffering? Not to, not to eliminate it, but, you know, because you, you know that in in your own life, if you... Make sacrifices and, and you and you dedicate to yourself to something and it 's very effortful and difficult and challenging in every way. It can still be considered worthwhile under some, under certain circumstances you 'll say that the the process and perhaps also the outcome justify the effort and so I think part of the question is well, if life has these underlying characteristics which are truly um, heart stopping in some sense, both tragedy let 's say and malevolence then It's not easy to formulate a mode of being that justifies that, but that's the fundamental ethical question is, is it possible to live your life in a manner that justifies the limitations of being? And there's this old Jewish story, which I really like, and it has a significance beyond, I think, what we can really understand. And the story goes like this. Um, First of all, the classical attributes of God are... are, uh, are presented, God's omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. And, and, then, and then the question arises, which is kind of like a Zen cone, what does a being that has those classical attributes lack? And of course, the answer seems to be nothing, because the definition of God is a totality. But the answer is that God lacks limitation. And that was the rationale for creation, was that there are advantages to limitation that totality does not have. And that's something that you can think about for like twenty years, and you won't run out you won't run to the bottom of it and you know you, you you might still say that limitation isn't worthwhile because of all the of all the weight that it places on the limited being but i I've also thought that through, and I don't think we actually think that because even if we don't necessarily love ourselves because we're very aware of our own shortcomings and 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 and, and lies and so forth, moral shortcomings as well as physiological shortcomings. We do love other people as a general rule, and to love someone is to make the case in the most realistic possible way, the most thorough possible way, that despite their flaws and limitations, that the fact that they exist is still fundamentally a good thing. And so I think it's through love that you, you demonstrate or realize, depending on how you look at it, that the If limitation is the price that you pay for being, which I think is a perfectly reasonable case to make, then it's the fact that you love that indicates that that's justifiable. And that's very much worth thinking about, too. Because, of course, I would say in the Christian corpus of ethics that both love and truth are the fundamental, uh, what would you say, they're the highest moral principles. It's something like truth nested inside love, and love is something like ultimate respect for being. It's something like that. and. And I think you partake in that, um, well, unconsciously and implicitly by, by actually actively participating in life and forming relationships and all of those sorts of things. Along with that goes a recognition that happiness is, see, one of the things about this book that I just told you about that tried to make a case for the utility of non-existence is that it's also predicated on the idea that the purpose of life is happiness and Solzhenitsyn, who wrote The Great Gulag Archipelago, which is a book that basically tore down the intellectual foundations of communism, wrote something very interesting about happiness. He said, one should never direct people towards happiness because happiness is an idol of the marketplace. Human beings are created for happiness. That's an ideology which is done in by the first blow of the work assigners' cudgel. And so, you know, Solzhenitsyn's point basically was that the idea that people were made to be happy is such a weak philosophy that if you ever encounter anything in your life that actually constitutes, say, genuine tragedy or, or worse, genuine malevolence, that it leaves you absolutely defenseless against those. And that's actually something of clinical significance because one of the things you do see if you're working with people, for example, who have post-traumatic stress disorder, although this isn't universally the case, that it's naive people who have a very, uh, uh, protected view of the world and of themselves that are more likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder if they encounter something terrible. And terror can be a tragic terror or a malevolent terror, and it's most often the latter. And so you can't protect yourself against the fundamental realities of existence by pretending that the purpose of life is happiness. It's, it's an insufficient philosophy. And that doesn't mean that happiness is trivial or that or, or or, despicable by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's a grace in some sense. And if it happens to come along, you should enjoy it. Because it's not going to last. And there will be times when you're very unhappy. And so, you know, when it's there, well, that's great. But it's a side effect of another pursuit at best. And it's certainly not the aim of life. And so I don't think that you can evaluate the value of life. By referring to either suffering or happiness, let's say, as the... Uh, hallmarks by which being is to be judged and I also think there's great danger in that Because you know one of the things is also the case that people take a look at the world And these are also pe- often people who shift very badly towards malevolence and they say they they look at the world and its insufficiencies and its suffering and its malevolence and th- and Their conclusion is that this should not be and what they do is take active action To eradicate it and you know you see that if you do if you read for example the kinds of writings that the mass killers Who are all too common now leave behind? It's very frequently the case that they justify their actions by making reference to the insufficiency of being and elevate themselves to the Position of ultimate judges and decide that destruction is the proper attitude towards towards existence because of its insufficiency and that's a form of satanic arrogance, and it le- leads directly to the most malevolent possible actions. And so, that's another reason why that uh, particular perspective, I think, is, is not only unwarranted, but also very dangerous. So, I'm going to walk you through a, a combination of biological argumentation and mythological argumentation at the same time. Because, you know, one of the things that... You might say plagues our society is the inability for us to bring together the scientific vision and the let's call it the mythological vision, or I would say the scientific vision and the dramatic vision. And I'm not trying to reduce one to the other, and and um, but I am trying to point out that they're not talking about the same. They're not talking about the same things. They're not. They're not uh, oriented towards the same kinds of truth. And that once you understand that, then you can see that they can be conjoined in a way that's mutually beneficial instead of instead of contradicting one another. So if you're insistent, for example, that the truths in the Bible are empirical scientific truths, which is actually a preposterous claim because the people who wrote the Bible weren't scientists because there weren't any scientists before about 500 years ago. So so whatever they were writing down wasn't science because science hadn't been invented yet. And so It's it's a very dangerous thing to try to make of the biblical stories The kinds of truth that are equivalent to scientific truth because the other thing is that scientists have a very powerful methodology for establishing their forms of truth and you don't want to set yourself up for failure against Against somebody who's better armed than you. Uh, That's one way of thinking about it and plus it puts a terrible schism within people modern people because they are surrounded by a technological world that functions very well and it's all predicated on the discoveries of science and to use those tools and to to and to act in the modern world is to simultaneously accept behaviorally the claims of truth that scientists and technologists uh, lay out because you wouldn't use the tools unless you believed in them and you believe in them because they work and they work because they're true in 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 the sense that something that works is true and that's a non-trivial form of truth so So I'm, I'm going to take you back a very long period of time I mean as far as we know from a biological perspective life started about three and a half billion years ago Which is a very long time ago, and you know, it's very interesting that from the biological perspective you are part of an unbroken string of life that's three and a half billion years old, right? Because every single one of your progenitors reproduced successfully for three and a half billion years. It's an absolutely overwhelming idea given the odds against that. Because in any given generation, a fair number of people don't reproduce. And so the odds that you actually are here are so infinitesimal that that the fact that you're here is actually impossible, but nonetheless, here you are. So that's quite the interesting phenomena. So I just want to kind of set you up to to know how it is that you're, you're laid out biologically and how deep some of these biological structures are, because you have to have some sense of how ancient they are before you can get some sense of how profoundly they can grip you. And so vertebrates popped up about 550 million years ago, and then mammals about 200 million years ago, placental mammals about 125 million years ago. There were still dinosaurs around at that time, by the way, so our mammalian forebears were inhabiting a planet that was ruled in in many ways by tyrannical lizards. Um, Snakes emerged about 60 million years ago, and it seems that there was a fair bit of evolutionary competition between snakes and our tree-dwelling ancestors, and that actually turns out to be very relevant for stories that we're going to tell later. So there's some evidence that snakes and tree-dwelling primates co-evolved, and that turns out to be very significant for human development, and then uh, we developed color vision, trichromacy, about 25 million years ago, and that was a consequence of eating fruit, and perhaps you can see some foreshadowing there with regards to the idea of the snake and the fruit, and so um, anyways, and so your, your nervous system, you know, is, well, it's, it's been developing, certainly, since there were vertebrates. And, uh, and there are elements of your nervous system that are unutterably old. And so one example of that, for example, it's quite interesting. I wrote about this, and I have a new book coming out in January called 12 Rules for Life, uh, which is already available on Amazon, for example. But I wrote a, a little chapter in there called Stand Up Straight With Your Shoulders Back. And mostly in that chapter I wrote about lobsters, and, and you, you might think, well, what the hell do lobsters have to do with anything? And, and that's a good question, but I can tell you some funny things about lobsters. So, for example, if, uh, if a lobster loses a fight, then he makes himself smaller and he goes and hides in his little lobster <clears throat> home and he won't come out for a while and he won't fight with anyone that he even even if he beat them before and it takes him quite a while to recover and and then if he fights again he's less likely to win than you would predict statistically if you tallied up all his previous victories so it, it depresses the lobster and he gets smaller and he crunches down and then but if a lobster wins then he stretches himself out and struts around like a like a victor lobster and then he's more likely to win the next fight than he would be if you tallied up his previous victories statistically and so so that's pretty interesting eh? because there's a relationship between postural adjustment and victory and so Well, one of the suggestions in the chapter is that you stand up straight with your shoulders back because that's a sign of, of Victor victory and confidence and that actually sets up a, a Psychological loop that elevates your mood and and so you share that with the lobster, but even more deeply If you take a lobster and you essentially give him antidepressants after he's lost a fight, then that stops the negative consequence of the defeat for the lobster and he'll fight again right away. And so it's it's a stunning example, as far as I'm concerned, of the continuity of life, right? Because we split evolutionarily from lobsters like 350 million years ago. It's a very, 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 very long time ago. And yet the fundamental neural circuitry that determines our level of confidence in the world, our position in the dominance hierarchy, because lo- lobsters also have dominance hierarchies, is virtually identical biochemically to that of crustaceans. And so, that's really something, well, it's something amazing beyond belief, and a good example of the tendency for evolution to conserve as well. So, um, and, and the reason that I'm, I'm making a case of this is because, for example, your position in a hierarchy is a very important determinant of your mood, right? And a hierarchy is a very, 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 very old thing. And it's not something you can see, like you see trees or floors or chairs or, you know, objects in the world. But it's something that really, really exists because hierarchies are older than trees. They're older than flowers. They're, they've been around forever, literally forever. And our brains are deeply adapted to the existence of hierarchies and... Um, So you could think of a hierarchy as a form of ultimate reality in some sense and that our symbolic representations We have symbolic representations of hierarchies because of that that are really wired into our nervous system They're pre-existent cognitive categories that for us to position ourselves in a hierarchy and to evaluate other people In terms of hierarchical competence or status. It's it's there as part of our essential human nature And we'll see how that plays out as we move forward here too So, here's something else about experience and you know it's also worth making a distinction right now about reality and experience. There's different ways of defining reality, right? And one is material, empirical, fundamentally and it's sort of predicated on the idea that it's external reality that's reality Uh, and that that reality is independent of human beings and it's independent of consciousness and and that it's the ultimate reality. there are there are useful consequences of perceiving reality like that. It makes us very technologically powerful, for example. But the reality that we live isn't like that. The reality that we live is, well, it's a symbolic reality and a dramatic reality, and it's full of emotions, and it's full of motivational states. And, and we accept those as fundamental realities. And the best example of that, which I think goes along with the idea of, that life is suffering, is that everybody accepts pain as a fundamental reality. And so... And no one argues about that, or even if they do, it doesn't matter, because when they're in pain, the pain overwhelms their argument. So, because you can't talk yourself out of pain, right? It's it's, it's it's got you, you don't have it. And you might not say, well, it's it's only a, an epiphenomenal manifestation of an underlying material reality, but that doesn't stop you from, you know, laying on the floor and rolling around in agony when it happens, so... So, I mean, philosophers of the 20th century in particular have noted this, especially Heidegger, and Heidegger talked about being instead of reality, and being is your lived experience essentially, like the totality of your experience, including your emotions and your motivations and your dreams and your valuing structures and all of that, and we're really, today when we talk about the mythological world, not only are we talking about the world as a form for action, but we're also talking about the experiential dimension of life, the reality that you actually live. And you could say that the material reality is the more fundamental of the two, but that's an arbitrary decision. You can also, it depends on how you define fundamental. And certainly people act, for example, as if pain is the most fundamental reality. And so, and I'm perfectly willing to throw out the proposition that you can detect what people accept as the truth more accurately by looking at how they act than by listening to what they say. And again, that's a proposition that's open for argumentation, but it's a solid argument, so I'm going to go along with that. And so, anyways, um, it's also a reflection of the fact that in this realm of experience that, that characterizes human, uh, human being, let's say, um, there is a world that we have to contend with, and, but there's also a structure that we impose on that world that's part of, the, part of human nature, and it's deeply part of us biologically, for example. And so, our experience is a intermingling of the, let's say, reality of the objective world that's always impressing on us and the social world and our a priori tendency to categorize the world. And that's part of our embodied structure, right? I mean, it's part of being human. We see the world in a human way and so we filter the world in a human manner and it's the filtering and the reality that makes up our experience. And so you could say, well, there's always an environment and it's dynamic, it's changing constantly, which is part of the challenge of life. There's, some things are relatively permanent and some things are relatively dynamic. You, you can understand that if you think about a piece of music, you know, I noticed that the Brandenburg Concertos were playing at the beginning of this uh, uh, session today and they're a very good example of Dynamism and, and and structure at the same time. There's repetitive motifs with constant alteration, and that's really that's what the world is. The world is dyna- is structured patterns that are relatively stable with dynamic transformations. And part of the reason that music is so meaningful to us is because music models that. And I was just reading a book last night by Ray Kurzweil, who's one of the world's foremost uh, uh, researchers in artificial intelligence, and. He said explicitly that, you know, the human brain is a pattern recognizer, that's how it works, and that what it's doing is mapping the patterns in the world, and so the world is made out of patterns, but the patterns change as well, and so, because it's made of patterns, then we can have knowledge, because patterns are something that have a certain amount of stability, but because the patterns change, our knowledge has to be updated, in order to keep up with the transformations. And so like I kind of think of the environment and this is a mythological representation as a giant serpent, you know, that's constantly moving back and forth and we're trying to stay in the middle of its back, but that's very difficult because it keeps moving. And so part of the reason that we have a political dynamic, for example, between left and right is so that we can stay in the center of the serpent's back. The environment is dynamic. And so you can't be 100% conservative because then you're like the military, always 100% prepared for the last war, right? But you're not prepared for what's now or what's coming, and you can't be completely uh, radical because then all you're paying attention to is the necessity for transformations and not the necessity for maintaining stable order. You need some balance between those two. And a great piece of music, I think, not only represents the fact that the world is a place of patterns, but that there's a a harmonious... uh, median, let's say, or a golden mean between stability and transformation. And when you hear that expressed in music, it's deeply meaningful. It's it's tr- it's, it's transcendently meaningful. And what that means is that the composer got the balance between transformation and stability right. And I would also say that you can experience that in your own life because when you experience the sense of deep meaning in your own life and deep engagement, your nervous system is actually signaling to you that you're in the place that's optimized between stability and transformation. One foot in stability and one foot in transformation. And so you're stable enough so you're not undoing yourself, which is really useful, but you're dynamic enough so you're also keeping up with the future. And so, you know, neuroscientists haven't really grappled properly, I would say, with the problem of the experience of meaning, of deep meaning. But we do know that our hemispheres are actually structured um, in a manner that reflects this order, dynamism. Uh, structure of the world. And and that's quite interesting, especially if you think about it from a biological perspective, because in principle we're evolved to deal with the real world, but we have two hemispheres. And the reason we have two hemispheres is because roughly speaking, the left hemisphere deals with stability and 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 constants and the right hemisphere deals with transformation and the communication between the two which is Often takes place in the form of dreams is the attempt of the right hemisphere to update the left hemisphere without destroying its integrity and they found even in, in artificial neural network systems that you need one system to deal with stability and another system to deal with transformation or the or the net can't maintain its structure and learn at the same time and so it seems to me that what happens when you experience a deep sense of meaning is that you're getting a, a signal from the deepest reaches of your nervous system that you're situated properly in time and space so that you're stabilizing yourself and updating yourself at the same time. And that's like that's another thing that's worth thinking about for about 20 years because, you know, it's easy for modern people with their nihilistic tendencies and their massive capacity for rationality to undermine the sense of meaning with obviously o- often relative... Trivial philosophical objections like well, what the hell difference is it going to make anyways in a hundred thousand years? Which I think of as just a cheap trick because you can always find a frame of reference that makes anything you're doing irrelevant That's just a trick. It's like well, what difference is it gonna make in a hundred trillion years? It's like how about you don't use that frame of reference to to construe your life. That's the answer to that problem It's like if it makes you feel horrible and dead then that's not the right way to think about it obviously and, you know, you, and no one does that seriously. You don't, you don't think about a child suffering in Auschwitz and say, well, what the hell difference is it going to make in 100 million years, right? You just think of that as absolutely cruel. So there's no reason for you to do that to yourself, to undermine whatever positive meaning you might be experiencing at the moment. Because all you're doing in that sense is elevating your rational doubt um, from a philosophical perspective above your embodied sense of engagement in the world. And that's actually a sin of rationality, I would say. It's a, it's a mistake, and it's an arrogant and totalitarian mistake, and, and it can be fatal. You know, if you wander down that road long enough, you'll end up suicidal or worse. So there's a dynamic environment. It's always changing, right? It's always moving around on you, and so you have to stay alert and awake in, in order to manage it. And then there's a structure that we impose on that, and there's... a. Uh, and there's, a, there's also a reader that's imposing the structure on the world. And so you could think about those as constants as well. So there's there's a chaotic domain that's always changing, there's an orderly domain that, that's relatively stable, and then there's something that's mediating between the two, mediating between order and chaos. And I would say that's consciousness. That's what consciousness does. That's what consciousness is for. And consciousness is the thing that mediates between chaos and order. And that turns out to have I would say deep theological and symbolic significance so here's one way of thinking about it is the world as a place of, of experience as a, as a dramatic forum and as a phenomenological reality which is the reality that you experience is always made of three things. It's made of order That's tradition. Let's say it's made of chaos and that's the things that come in and disrupt order Um, Unexpectedly and then it's made of the person who's in the middle of those two things Experiencing both the order and chaos and mediating between them because as a as a conscious being If you're trying to dance with reality properly, then you you maintain the structure where the structure is healthy and necessary And you reduce the structure to chaos and reconfigure it when that's necessary as well And so that's why you see for example, in the New Testament stories, Christ talks about himself as the full manifestation of the law, even though he's also a, a social critic. You might say he's also someone who challenges tradition. He's both the fulfillment of tradition and the thing that challenges it. So he's, a, he's an avatar of order, but also an avatar of, of transformation. And that's that's the right way to conceive of yourself. You need to be deeply... Deeply informed about your tradition because that way you can understand the structures that help you orient yourself in the world because they're part of you like history is deeply deeply built into you biologically and culturally and you need to understand that and not throw it away because it's actually part of you but then you also have to be alive and alert and paying attention because the present isn't the same as the past and the future isn't the same as the present and so you also have to be willing to modify and transform carefully and cautiously where that's necessary. And, and that's your existential duty, you might say. Or maybe you might even say that's your spiritual duty. Or maybe you could even say that's the purpose of your life. I think no, none of those claims are contradictory. And I think they're also all valid. And I, I, not only do I think that, but I think that that manifests itself as purpose in your life. Because when you're feeling like you're deeply... Immersed in something and integrated with it and you feel that it's worthwhile and you feel that it's justifying your life That's actually an indication that you're doing both of those things at the same time And that means you're optimizing your own being because you're stabilizing yourself, but also growing But at the same time because you're communicating with other people you're doing that for the culture at large And so that's there's nothing better you can do than that and so it's reasonable to be allow yourself to be guided by your sense of Phenomenological meaning because it might be the deepest instinct that you have and it might be the one that's most correct now one of the things I've learned about that is that this is also one of the reasons why it's very important not to lie to yourself because that sense of meaning comes up from very, very deep, how deep we don't know. And if you've corrupted your, your, your biological structure, your psyche, or your soul, by feeding yourself deceitful lies and, 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 and interfering with, the proper, um, with your proper mapping of the world at the level of basic information, then you're going to skew that sense of meaning. And it's not going to be able to report accurately to you. And you really don't want to do that because, you know, you are guided by your deepest instincts. And in order for them to operate properly, you have to keep yourself pristine or they'll, they'll warp. And then they'll take you in directions that you shouldn't go. You know, because one of the things I had to think about when I was... Um, Walking through the development of these ideas is well What do you do about people like the serial killers who seem to find deep meaning and extraordinarily malevolent actions right and say well They're following their meaning it's like yeah Well, they've corrupted themselves to a point where it, they're virtually irredeemable and so all of their Underlying guiding instincts have gone terribly astray and you don't want to have that happen because you're basically training the thing that's leading you to be pathological and and and, well, pathological, and destructive, and vile, and, well, everything terrible that you can possibly imagine. So, here's another way of thinking about it. The world's made out of order, and it's made out of chaos, and it's made out of the logos. And the order, order is, you you have to define order psychologically. Order is where you are when the things that you want are happening because of the way that you act. So order is actually this state where the world is not only predictable, but the predictable things that are happening are the things that you wanna have happen. And the reason that's order is because it indicates that you have mastery over that space, right? Because you, you take the space, you're trying to fulfill what it is that you're aiming at, and then you do fulfill it, and that is by definition an indication that you've mastered it, at least sufficiently and that's all you get if you're a human being is sufficient mastery because you're limited You're never going to be absolutely right. So you're always kind of testing your theories partially But as long as what you're doing where you are is working the way you intend it to do then you're in order You're at a party you tell a joke everyone laughs. It's like great. You understand the party You understand the joke, you're actually funny, and people respond to it appropriately. And that justifies your initial theory, which is that you're at a party and that you're funny. But then if you tell a joke and everybody looks at you like, you know, like uh, something horrible has entered the room, then that's an indication that... Well, you don't understand the party, and these people who aren't who they th- you think they are, or you're not who you think you are, and you aren't funny, and, and you're actually rather offensive, and like, what in the world does that mean? And so you can move from the place of order to the place of chaos in a in a heartbeat, even if you happen to be in the same room. And so, so these aren't exactly geographical representations, right? They're... They are, in a sense, because they're actually four-dimensional. It's three dimensions plus time because the party where where you were before you told the terrible joke and the party where you are after you told the terrible joke aren't the same party, even though it's the same room, and the reason for that is that time has occurred, right, and time A and time B aren't the same. So anyways, you can transform an orderly domain into a chaotic domain by an error very, very rapidly. And that happens to people all the time. And sometimes it happens because you've done something that isn't very bright or very awake or very alert. Because you're deceitful or deceptive or, or ignorant. Those are basically the reasons. Or sometimes you seem to just get unlucky. You know, you wake up in the morning and you have an ache in your side and you think, well, it's just... You know, I pulled a muscle or whatever, and then it gets worse, and then it turns out that it's cancer, and then you die. And that's another way that order can transform itself into chaos. And that doesn't seem to have as much to do with your own behavior, you know, because there's a random element in life. But it's just another example of how the, the facade of predictability that we lay upon the world can be continually violated by... The things outside of that facade that we don't yet understand so you've got the world partially mapped that's one way of looking at it but there's lots of things that aren't on your map and when you're lucky those things don't show up but now and then they show up and you know sometimes they just punch a little hole in your map and that's rather annoying and sometimes they burn the whole thing up and that's really absolutely terrible that's when people develop post-traumatic stress disorder or something like that because their entire order, their entire structure of order has crumbled because of a deep disruption in the structure of their, well, in their structure. And then the logos part, what we talked about, that, that's that intermediary process. And I use the word logos very specifically, and of course, you are all familiar with the idea of the logos. But my sense is, is that the entire religious history of Judeo-Christianity has been an attempt to elaborate the nature of the logos. And the logos is... Because you might say, well, how do people make order out of chaos and and the reverse? How do they make tyrannical order back into potential chaos so that it can be rebuilt? And the way that you do that is by, by, by communicative consciousness, essentially. So it's partly the fact that you're conscious and aware. It's partly the fact that you can think in words. It's partly the fact that when you think in words, you tend to think publicly, right? Because you've got to talk to other people to get your head straight. If you're oriented by love and trying to tell the truth, then... You're acting as the logos in the world, and you're, you're keeping the balance between order and chaos. You're, you're maintaining the balance between order and chaos. That's what you're doing. And that's, that's been a very difficult thing for people to realize. It's taken us really tens of thousands of years to come up with that idea. And I would say it's the primary idea of the West, because it's an indication of the sovereignty of the individual, and the idea as well that both, that the balance between, first of all, that the individual is more important than order, Second, that chaos needs to exist. Third, that the thing that keeps the balance in place is the individual, and that therefore the state should never be allowed to tyrannize the individual because it throws the structure of the cosmos, it destabilizes the structure of the cosmos. And I think that that's as close a representation of deep reality as we've managed to formulate. And so, you know, it's associated with the idea, for example, that at the beginning of time, it was God's use of the logos that which there's the word that called order out of chaos, habitable order out of chaos. And that's not a scientific theory, it's, it's, it's in some sense deeper than a scientific theory. It has more to do with the relationship between whatever consciousness is, and whatever communicative consciousness is, and the continual elaboration of a habitable world. And part of the reason that, as far as I can tell, that it, it insists in Genesis that men and women are made in the image of God is because we participate in that logos process for better or worse constantly because in some sense we're always facing a field of possibility because it's an, another way of looking at the world is that it's a field of possibility rather than a field of possible patterns that's a good way of thinking about it and that what you're attempting to do is bring into be is to make some of those patterns real and to leave the other ones as potential and if you're an honorable person and motivated properly then you search out the patterns that Enhance being let's say and maintain the balance between chaos and order and you do what you can to bring those into being and Then through your individual conscious choice and your communication You decide whether the world is going to tilt more towards heaven or whether it's going to tilt more towards hell And I also think that's very much in keeping with people's What would you say? Spontaneous experience because you know perfectly well every single person in this room has had the experience of knowing that they're about to do something that will make things worse and then doing it anyways, you know, and so you know that now sometimes you don't know right because you, you, you don't know what to do So you kind of have to guess because you're Delimited by your ignorance and then maybe it's a mistake, but but that's not being That's not something that's malevolent. That's just a mistake But there's no shortage of things that people do to make things worse and and, and that's really made me think too because you know, one of the reasons that people get irritated at the structure of being is because things are worse. and But there's an open question there, which is a question that's really worth considering, which is, how would things be if people stopped consciously making them worse? You know, because we're pretty remarkable creatures, and there's almost no limit to what we can do by by all evidence. And But Lao Tzu, for example, when he wrote the Tao Te Ching, he, he came up with a hypothesis, which was that, you could divide people into thirds and one third of people were trying to actively make being better and one third of people were basically on the fence and a third of people were actively trying to make things worse and obviously that's just a, you know, rule of thumb and kind of a metaphor but, but it's definitely worth considering because if all people work towards making things better, we have absolutely no idea how good they would get. You know, they might get, there might be no limit to how good they could get. And I think there are intimations of that in deep religious writings. And so it's something very much worth considering in your own life, you know, is that in in the idea of trying to avoid sin, you know, sin means to miss the target, right? Because it's it's actually an archery term. It's derived from a Greek term, hamartia, which was an archery term. And so to sin is to mean to miss the target. And you can do that by not having a target to aim at, not specifying it precisely, not looking at where it is, not practicing, looking in the other direction, failing to take a shot, like there's all sorts of ways to, to do that badly, and well, if you don't hit the target, then you're not participating in the process of bringing being into being the proper manner, and then you're not acting out your, I would say, I would say, the, the, what would we call it, the requirement that divinity has placed within you, that's probably the right way to think about it. And then the fact that we're made in the image of God, I think, is a representation of the idea that, well, at the beginning of time, God called forth habitable order out of chaos, and then granted human beings the same capacity, yet on a much more limited scale, Let's say, although we don't know how limited, right? Because we don't really know how limited we are. And then we're set out to do precisely that. And I do think that's in accordance with the way that people experience the world. Because we do have the sense of right and wrong. We do have the sense of knowledge of good and evil, which is also something that's laid out very carefully in Genesis. And it does seem to me that from a phenomenological perspective, that the world is fundamentally an ethical structure. And that every day for us is a series of choices between moving the world in a direction that's positive and moving the world in a direction that's negative. And I think that we... We suffer when we move it in a direction that 's negative. We lose respect for ourselves. We weaken ourselves. we increase the probability that we want to hurt ourselves and other people and and I think we all know that and so but you know we 've partly because our understanding of the world has become destabilized because of the conflict, say, between science and religion, it's hard for us to take that as seriously, consciously, as we might. Because even though we experience the world that way, it's hard for us to think about that as real in the same way that we think about, because we're so materialistic, in the same way that we think about the material world as real. But I think it's more real, and part of the reason I think that is because I think that pain is very real. And I think that what happened in the 20th century, which was an absolutely abysmal century in many ways, was an indication that when people behave immorally, that the level of suffering in the world rises to an absolutely intolerable degree. And that seems to me, I don't think that you can walk through the history of the 20th century without understanding, first of all, that it's perfectly possible for human beings to create hell on earth and that we've done it multiple times. And that a large part of the reason that we're capable of creating hell on earth is because as individuals, that's what we actually aim for. And so we can get it. And so that seems like a bad idea. And it seems like a fundamentally bad idea. So unless that's what you want, and then, well... And then, you know, good luck to you and everyone around you. So, because they're going to need it, and so are you. So, here's a Taoist representation of the world, right? This is a very famous representation. And this is basically two serpents, one white and one black, head to tail. And uh, the white one is Yang. And people often translate that as male. And, and Yin as female. But... That's not exactly the right translation. It's masculine and feminine is better. And those are symbolic categories, not biological categories, although they're associated with biological categories. And then a better translation, either even is order versus chaos. And so the Taoist idea, which is a brilliant idea, once, once, you, once you understand the language, is that everywhere you go, you're in, what, you're, what you experience is order and chaos. Everywhere. So you go to a place like this and the order is that, you no, know, everybody knows the rules. We're all sitting down the same way. We're all imitating each other, right? Because everyone's doing the same thing. And that's order. And if someone got up and started screaming, especially if they were brandishing a weapon, then that would be chaos, right? And Right, exactly. Well, and you can see how that chaos could emerge because we're all very strange creatures. And we all have the capacity for extremely unexpected behavior. and. The fact that we're all sitting here peacefully means that we've adopted a particular kind of moral code and that we're embodying social order in our actions and our intentions and our perceptions and all of that. And so when you go somewhere, there's order to the degree that it's predictable and that you're getting what you want. But there's also chaos because also everywhere you go, there are all sorts of things that transcend the limits of your knowledge. And so, for example, when you come to a, a gathering like this, you expect a, a minimum of civilized behavior from people, but you also don't know who the people are. And so maybe if you're a bit socially anxious, you're kind of worried about coming into the to the gathering, because you're going to have to encounter what you don't know in other people, and they're going to evaluate you and all of that. And that's gonna, that takes you outside your zone of comfort. It takes you out into chaos. And if you're not doing that voluntarily, then it can really paralyze you. And so, And every situation is like that because everywhere you go there's things about where you are that you know And there's things about where you are that you don't know And the reason that there's a black dot in the white serpent and a white dot in the black serpent is because the Taoists were smart enough to know that one of those things can transform into the other at the drop of a hat. So, you know, I I told the little story about telling a bad joke at a party, and that's order transforming itself into chaos. And That can be a deep blow, because if people really don't think you're funny and instead find you offensive, then you might have to go home and think about that for like a month, because either you don't read the social circumstance correctly, or those people aren't the things that you thought they were, or there's something deeply wrong with you. And that's a that's a deep hole to fall into and it's as if you've fallen through the while well, you're on ice right and there's a deep lake beneath that and you thought you were on solid ground but you weren't and you fell in and you're down there and it's cold and it's icy and you're drowning and that's an experience that everybody has you know you you it's a universal experience where you think you're somewhere, or you think you're going somewhere, and then all of a sudden you're not, and so that happens when you fail to get a promotion at work, or when someone betrays you, or when a relationship ends, or, or when, you, when you betray yourself, you know, because you knew you could attain something, and didn't do the work that was necessary, and, and so that's a, that's a transition from the orderly domain into the chaotic domain. And that's a trip to the underworld. That's a mythological trip to the underworld. And if you're really unlucky, that mythological trip to the underworld can uh, include a little side journey into hell where you start to, you know, c- c- question the validity of your own existence and the existence of everything else and start to become possessed by, by by experiences of rage and the desire for destruction and resentment and the willingness to deceive and the and the and the, and, and the f- constant fantasies of vengeance, and that can just spiral completely and utterly out of control. And so, there's all sorts of terrible things to be found once you break through the surface of, of structured reality and start to become pr- prey to whatever it is that lurks beneath the surface. Those are all the potential, in some sense, those are all the potentialities that you have that you could use to repair the damaged structure, but it's a terrible, chaotic jumble that you have to sort through, you know, I mean, so one example might be like, if you're betrayed in a relationship, one reason might be because you're just too too naive and weak and, you know, you've got this person that you're with and they've got some problems and they need, like, they need a psychological cuff about three times a day to stay in line. Like, like most of us do, right? Because most of us stay sane because we're fortunate enough to have people around us who are constantly telling us when we're going insane and they do that by raising their eyebrows, or objecting to what we say, or calling us selfish, or, and, and, you know, we sort of step back and think, well, yeah, I'm kind of being a jerk, and, but if you're not around people who, who are willing to enforce that, then you can drift very badly, And end up places you shouldn't and take that person apart. So that often happens when someone gets betrayed and so let's say that you've been too nice and too forgiving and you haven't laid down the law properly and you let the person take advantage of you and you're getting all resentful about it, but you won't say anything and then the person goes off and has an affair and then you're like enraged by that and you experience all this mixture of emotions including high levels of hostility and aggression that might even become murderous. It's like it's an indication to you, actually, that you should have you been using some of that all along in the relationship, you know. You'd, you'd buried that underneath. You'd never integrated it into your personality. And then when you saw small signs of the person drifting, instead of, you know, taking them to task and calling them on their misbehavior, when it was small, you just ignored it and it just expanded completely out of control. And, like, I'm not blaming the victim here, you know, that's not the point. But... But the point is, is that when you fall through the ice, even if you end up in a terrible place, the place that you end up is also a place of potential out of which you can build a new character if you're fortunate and you're able to reemerge. And, you know, you're not always. Sometimes you can get hit so hard that you never recover. It's no joke to take a trip to the underworld, especially if you do it involuntarily. But anyways, for the Taoists, that's the structure of being, and it's brilliant, it's absolutely brilliant. And then the idea is that the proper place for you, if you're oriented, is exactly in the middle of that structure, right with one foot in order and one foot in chaos, and that's actually the Dao, that's meaning, that's the way of life, that's the proper path. And so, it's incredibly profound, once you understand the underlying symbolic reference. And the fact that it's not, it's not just a metaphor, that's the other thing that's so cool, because often people think about these symbolic representations as metaphors, but sometimes they're not metaphors, what they are instead is meta-realities, which are high-level abstractions, like really high-level abstractions, but they're more real than the thing from which they're abstracted. Like, just like numbers can be more real than the things they represent, you know, and the idea that the world is made out of order, is exactly right. That's, that's not a metaphor, like even the fact that society is always structured, and that not only human society is structured, but society has been structured all the way back to the lobster hierarchies, right, for 350 million years, indicates that order is a component of the world that, that has been there it's, it's, it's an eternal component of the world. That's the right way of thinking about it. You know, and you look, this is echoed very, very deeply because think about the story of Adam and Eve, eh? Because one of the things you might ask yourself is, well, what the hell is up with the snake? You know, wh- why is there a snake in the garden? The garden is paradisal. Why is there a snake in the garden? And the answer to that is, is that you can't build a bounded area, an orderly area, without some admixture of chaos in it. It's not possible because there's... To order is to exclude, let's say. It's to put some things inside and some things outside. But those things that are outside are going to come inside. You know, and that's what the snake in the garden represents. It's that human beings are in this paradisal state and everything is going well. But there's one thing that attracts their attention, right, fatally. And that they go and learn about that. It undoes them. And, you know, that's how we learn. Is We're all complacent about something and then something comes along and... and you know, maybe attracts our attention, and then we learn something. Well, how how many times do you actually learn something that's really deep and profound that doesn't shatter you in some way? You know, and you think, well, you know, oh man, I didn't really want to learn that. You know, but maybe if you're fortunate, you know, when you integrate it, and and your character expands because of it, and you pop back out of that state, you think, well, that was horrible, and I wouldn't want to do it again, but I'm not unhappy that it happened. Because growth re- involves a death and a rebirth at small levels and at grand levels. And it's the price you pay for being able to transform yourself. It's, it's part of the process by which death renews life. And it's, it's by no means pleasant. Uh, which I also think is why little deaths are preferable to big deaths. So, you know, if you're having a relationship with someone and they're doing some things that you don't want them to keep doing for the next five decades, then it's probably better just to have the little fight there and straighten it out before it turns into something that's a monster big enough to eat the whole relationship. And that happens to people all the time because they won't face the chaotic element when it's still controllable. They ignore it, and it grows, and then they get a little weaker, and then they ignore it, and it grows, and they get a little weaker. And then, at some point, the whole relationship isn't orderly. It's just chaotic, and that's the end of it. Both people fall underneath the surface. They're swallowed by the the whale, let's say, or they're consumed by the dragon, and then all hell breaks loose. And so, it's not... That's also a call to existential courage, you know. when, When the snake only shows its head, that's the time to react. It's too late when the thing has got... When the thing has encircled your entire house, and you say, well, what's up with this? It's like, well, you let it grow for 30 years. What in the world do you expect? You know, and then the probability that you're going to be able to take it on when it's a full-fledged monster when you weren't able to take it on when it was nothing but a little newt is like zero. So that's another reason why it's so necessary for people to tell and act out the truth, because it's, it's one of the things that stops the chaos around you from growing to the point where you will fall into it and... And then maybe fall into its worst sub elements so so here's these are very cool images I think they're they're so um the question is how are these things represented um I want to show you these two one of these is from Egypt, that's the one on the left hand side, and the other is from china and they're they're very Old images and maybe they spring from the same source. It's possible but the Chinese civilization ancient Chinese civilization and ancient Egyptian civilization were separated by Geography and by culture and even by biology to some degree and so what you see there is that those are both snakes At the bottom and out of the snakes arise a male and a female and you see that in both sides on on the left It's it's Foxy and Nuwa. on the that's the Chinese representation and then on the left, it's uh, Osir- Osiris and, and, and uh, Isis. And so, I, I want to walk you through why those representations exist. It's quite complicated, but that's okay. We'll, 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 we'll walk through it carefully.